You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hi, I'm Ariel Kane, Director of Healthcare at PPI, and this is our podcast, Radically Pragmatic. Today we have Jonas Aransky, Legal Director for Every Town for Gun Safety, here to discuss gun control, gun laws, the Supreme Court decision, and the lack of gun laws, and we're excited to have him here today. Thanks, Jonas. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So after two recent mass shootings, um, including Uvalde, where 19 people, including 17 children, were killed, there was new momentum for reaching a compromise and passing something through Congress. Republicans were okay with focusing on mental health, and Democrats were eager to take whatever they could get. And they reached a compromise, and over the weekend, Biden signed the um, bill into law. And I was just wondering, can you tell us about this gun legislation and um, anything that we should be aware of? What does it do? Yes, pretty major breakthrough for the gun safety movement. Uh, There's a lot of really important policy in here. Folks will probably know that the new law doesn't include one of our top priorities, background checks on all gun sales, but it does have several other major pieces that will save lives. It addresses the so-called dating partner loophole. So that will finally bar gun possession by abusive dating partners convicted of misdemeanor crimes. The law will fund states to implement their extreme risk laws, which allow interventions when a person sends off red flags that they pose a danger to themselves or others. Those are situations where loved ones or law enforcement then ask a judge to temporarily remove their access to guns. Uh, The law also provides new funding for direct violence intervention programs. The idea there is to kind of break the cycle of violence uh, in hard hit communities. We have also in there new language on gun trafficking, uh, new funding for mental health resources. So the laws are also a really major political breakthrough moment. We've won 15 Republican Senate votes, and you know it's the first major gun safety law this century. So we're, we're very pleased and proud this week. Yeah. So obviously, it isn't everything that Democrats wanted, like you mentioned, um, universal background checks. But you, well, what do you think the impact of this legislation could be? I mean, the impact will be massive. First of all, you know those, those policies I just ran down, those are going to save lives in the really short term. We're talking about, you know, critical domestic violence interventions, critical interventions when people are at ser- in serious crisis and, and at risk of, of harming themselves or others. We also think that it's a just a huge political momentum breakthrough moment. Uh, we hope and expect to see more federal action going forward. And there are just a myriad ways that uh, states can capitalize and state legislatures can capitalize on this energy. So w- we think it should be a you know major, major impactful inflection point for us. Speaking of sort of the inflection point, you know, this is more of a political question, I guess. But like, why do you think that this moment was different from, say, Sandy Hook? Because I'm I'm admitting myself that I had become pretty jaded after Sandy Hook and thought that everything was out of reach. And then, you know, a a very similar thing happened at Uvalde. And yet we, we got um, we got some things this time. So why was this moment different? Yeah, I mean, in in many ways, the moment isn't different. 
you know, the shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde are no different than the shooting in Sandy Hook or the shooting in Parkland or the you know, myriad shootings that happen on a daily basis that don't make the news. Gun violence is is entrenched. It's been here for for a long time in this country. The solutions we need are are are, are massive, and we need we need real political energy uh, to to fix them. Uh, but but the difference is is really in the in that political energy. It's, uh, I think there's real proof of concept here. It's hard because Congress rarely passes laws, but there's real proof of concept here. And you know we're we're proud and pleased that it's on our issue. That you know, time times energy times movement building, uh, times thoughtfulness times pressure, times you know good common sense logic actually prevailed in this case. Uh, it's it's not what the American experience has has been much recently, but um, we don't think there's anything different about this about this moment other than that you know those those forces finally combined to push something over the finish line. Yeah. And I think that, you know, progress is progress and Democrats should be extremely proud of this compromise legislation, even if it isn't everything um, they wanted. You know, this is movement in the right direction and, you know, success begets success. So all of these things I think are good. You know, they can continue to build momentum, like you said earlier, either at the state level or, you know, pushing for further federal action. Um, But what other things do you think could like common sense gun reforms could make a real difference. There's so much work to do. Ever since you know we we lost after Sandy Hook uh, in 2013, failed to pass background checks through Congress. You know the movement really took the work to the states and has been proving itself now for you know year after year in, in in states across the country that the work can be done in the states. So really, you know, I'd point your listeners to a lot of the state legislative action that's been so impactful these last several years, you know, that's strong permit laws, strong background checks laws, systems for removing illegal guns quickly when people become prohibited. Uh, It's requirements that gun owners have to keep their guns secure uh, in their homes uh, so that they're not used unintentionally or stolen. That's the really critical community violence interruption programs that have become a mainstay for, for every town and for the movement. And those extreme risk laws I just talked about, uh, just just to name a few. So on that same note of sort of the state state level action, um, you know, as Congress was taking these steps forward, um, the Supreme Court last week issued a decision that seems to take us backward. I believe the decision said that New York cannot require people who want to carry guns um, in public settings. They cannot require them to have like a special need. So, you know, what is the impact of that decision and how will it interact with states trying to make progress? Yeah, it's absolutely amazing for this movement and for for my work today and for the the work of all the people that have been so dedicated uh, here and all the gun violence survivors that these things crested on the same day that this bill moved through the Senate, which was the first major gun safety law this century the very same day as this really impactful and, and really negative Supreme Court opinion. Uh, the, the case is called Bruin, B-R-U-E-N. The decision is, is dead wrong. Uh, it's really dangerous for the American public. These are provisions in the concealed carry laws of several states that SCOTUS struck down last week that have helped those states have some of the lowest gun violence rates nationwide. Uh, New York's law was on the books for over a century. 
it's just a really disturbing turn of events also that the Supreme Court is rewriting the process for how you evaluate whether common sense laws are allowed under the Constitution. Uh, so it's a, it's a sad day. Uh, that said, this is, this is just one aspect of New York's strong carry laws. It, it doesn't impact the laws in 44 states. Uh, in New York and in the peer states, we expect to see really quick fixes to the laws that put the strongest possible, say strongest allowable replacement laws into effect. Uh, and you know the gun safety movement just has to keep going. We'll we'll take the moment and we'll we'll come back with more vigor than ever to to pass and to implement responsible laws that protect people from being shot and killed. Yeah, that was disappointing. You know, as someone who lives in D.C., where we do have really strict gun laws, but you know Heller you know, undid a D.C. law, and then on top of that, we're neighboring by Virginia, where there's long been. Um, a lot more access to guns. And there's evidence that all those guns make it into D.C. And I was reading, I think yesterday, they passed something like 100 homicides already this year, um, which is very demoralizing. But so my other idea, this was, you know, again, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm thinking about, you know, how can we continue to sort of inch forward on gun control? And I was reading that the victims of Sandy Hook recently settled with the maker of the gun used in that shooting. Um, Remington was the company that made it. And they got like $73 million, I think, um, basically arguing or, you know, it was a settlement. So there was no decision or no admittance of guilt. But basically the argument was that Remington was advertising their guns to be used used for violent purposes. Um, and so my question is, you know, generally speaking, gun makers are protected against civil suits when their guns are used in a crime. But I have two questions. One, should states pursue suits um, like they have with the opioid crisis? And is repealing that law that protects manufacturers a possibility? Yeah, I can, I can tell you about the federal backdrop and then also what states can do. There's, there's a lot of context. I'll, I'll try to run through it quickly. Um, it's, it's pretty disturbing and hopefully is, you know, actually the kind of backdrop that, that gets people angry because we have uh, the, the, the state of the federal laws here is, is really sorry when it comes to accountability for the gun industry. So what you're referring to is a pretty shocking immunity shield that was passed into law about 20 years ago. It's called the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act. We call it PLACA. Uh, so there was a really a stream of lawsuits at the time going after gun makers. And just a few years earlier, there had been an effort by the Clinton administration to strike a deal with Smith and Wesson, where they would have agreed to make their practices more responsible. In short, this you know really awful law, I guess it was 2005, uh, PLACA attempts to block survivors of gun violence, including the loved ones of people who are killed, from holding the industry accountable in court. Uh, there are actually a couple other really awful pieces of, of federal backdrop that are worth knowing and kind of thinking, thinking of as a related stew. Uh, one is the Consumer Product Safety Commission has never had authority over firearms. It's a really kind of bizarre exclusion from the ambit of the CPSC. But since that body came into place in the 70s, they haven't had the power to regulate firearms. So you can't have you know, regulations of guns that look like regulations for children's toys or the like. Also for, folks may know this, but pretty much for the entirety of its existence, the ATF, which is the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, has been pretty much you know, severely under-resourced 
and never had the authority it needs as the primary regulator of dealers and gun makers. So it's just extraordinarily difficult for ATF to do basic oversight, like suspending or revoking licenses of really bad gun dealers. They can't even require dealers to put basic physical security systems into place. So the ATF cannot tell gun dealers, like, you have to lock up your guns. They're not, they're not allowed to do that. It's a pretty shocking set of kind of basic framework structure facts here. There is a hope side of this. And that comes in, in what you asked about, Ariel, which is the, the state's end of this. So PLACA, that federal law, should be repealed. It must be repealed. This is kind of like a unique bar against accountability. Uh, but in the meantime, last year, the New York legislature passed a law that was the first of its kind. It's a state law that works to put as much room as possible uh, within PLACA for survivors to get into court. So under the leadership of, of Brooklyn's own state senator, Zellner Myrie, the state passed what's it's legally called a state predicate exception statute. It effectively makes it a public nuisance for dealers and gun makers to engage in deceptive practices or false advertising or to fail to put reasonable controls and procedures into place. That law was just upheld by a federal court just this past May. The gun lobby immediately challenged. Um, we expect other states to follow suit. We actually, you know, New York was first, but we're hopeful that California, Delaware, New Jersey are going to put similar laws into place this year. So there's there's hope coming from the states, you know, trying to to use as much as we can uh, the courts to help, even though we have this pretty sick set of of federal backdrops. Basically, the reason I was thinking about this was the Sandy Hook settlement, but also just like we're known as being like a litigious country, like people sue over everything. And oftentimes, like that's how you see manufacturers change behavior. Like I'm thinking about washing machines, um, like they didn't have the little trigger that ca causes them to stop turning until they were sued, um, you know, for children like losing limbs in the washing machine. And now when you open the washing machine, it stops. So I was like, how can we as like citizens hold gun makers accountable for what they're doing? And, and I was wondering too, again, going to the state angle and thinking about the opioid thing, like maybe selling opioids is perfectly legal, but like the opioid manufacturers were aware that like one or two doctors or certain regions, um, there was just like a flood of opioids going there. And like, that's how they've kind of gone after people as they said that they were, you know, being criminally negligent in their prescribing patterns and the distributors and the manufacturers were in on it because they were benefiting from the criminally negligent behavior. And so if you think about like gun selling, sellers or manufacturers, um, you know, like on the border of Illinois and Indiana, like that's another place where you see criminals in Chicago go outside of Illinois to buy a bunch of guns and then commit crimes. And you, you've got to assume that like manufacturers and gun sellers are like kind of aware, like if you see the same people, are you just the high volume? Um, and like, is there anything that we can do to like hold these people accountable for perpetuating crimes in in areas like Chicago, for example? Yeah, I mean, we would we would hope that these two issues are connected because the progress on on opioids was was really significant. I, I just finished a book the book Empire of Pain about the opioid crisis, and the author talks about analogies with with gun guns and the gun industry pretty frequently in there. Um, 
it is both hard to overstate how much these uh, federal pain points that I mentioned uh, make the the gun industry story a unique story and a different one from uh, a pharma story. Um, but there are are still plenty of reasons for hope in several areas where where we can where we can be attacking and trying to hold the industry accountable. A piece of it is has got to be in court, um, and then a piece of it really can just be stronger state regulation. Um, while we wait for federal regulation that is going to cover the 50 states. So, you know, on the on the litigation side, you know, even with the new New York law uh, and we'll and we'll see what the future brings, um, but it's still difficult to sue. It's not one single solution that is going to you know, revolutionize how gun makers behave. Uh, it's still exacting work in New York to find the right case where a specific act of gun violence was caused by a specific dealer or gun makers, you know, failure to, to, in a way that fits the bill. Um, you know, every town has a team, we call them every town law, has a pretty core focus on, on finding and pursuing those types of cases. So that, that work is being done. Uh, the lawsuit in Connecticut that you mentioned, Ariel, where Remington settled for $73 million with, with Sandy Hook families earlier this year was a landmark. Again, it's a settlement, so it's not, you know, re repeatable in a, in a one for one basis, but it was was important that that uh, case was allowed to go as far as it was. You know, Connecticut has a different type of statute that's like an unfair trade practices type of theory. Uh, they focus there on on the marketing, marketing to young, you know, boys and men at risk. You know, marketing and violent video games. They're the the Bushmasters, uh, SCOTUS refused to hear a case about whether that suit was was effectively preempted by PLACA. Um, Remington actually has filed for bankruptcy multiple times. Uh, there's a lot of hope that one that one can find in that in that case. Um, but when it comes to direct regulation, there's actually a lot that states can do while the feds fail to do it. So you know, states can put requirements, specific requirements in place for gun makers. They can say, if you want to sell guns into our state, they have to be childproofed. And there's you know, several different ways you can do that. There's ways that you can uh, you know, change the technology. Um, California has kind of the groundbreaking law in this area uh, to, to make them, you know, make it harder for a, a child to access the gun. Folks probably have heard of, you know, smart guns, personalized guns fit into a similar category. States can also put dealer regulations into place. So I mentioned before, you know, physical security, there are now several states that say, hey, if you want to sell guns in the state, you have to lock them. And we're going to tell you how you had to lock them on the wall. So they can't be stolen from your place of business. Um, the feds don't even aren't even allowed to have dealers produce inventories. These are all the guns that came in. These are all the guns that went out over the last year. So it's you know really hard to track which stores are, are responsible for uh, guns being trafficked into our communities. States can do that. States can require detailed inventories. States can require you know, reporting and centralizing all data uh, you know, from crime guns, when crime guns are traced, uh, when they uh, uh, show up at crime, at crime scenes and, and are found by, by police. Um, and, you know, that's work that can help break up trafficking rings, identify troubling dealers also. Uh, so there's, there's just tons of work that states can do while the feds up to now have refused to do it. Uh, so it's a laundry, it's, it might seem like a laundry list, but each of those, each of those policies add one the other and make, and make a really big difference. There are several reasons why we have such lower gun violence in, in the states with the strongest laws, but, um, it's, as you it's have a, a siren going by behind you. Oh yeah, as you can hear <laughs> the siren on the 
<laughs> the mean streets. That's are an ambulance, not a police car. <laughs> um, uh, I'll leave my laundry list there. That's, I mean, that's really helpful. And then, you know, again, just like kind of, I was trying to think like outside the box, but like just knowing that groups like yours are, you know, working really hard on those issues is like so awesome to hear um, because we know that, you know, the NRA is working really hard to sue on the other side. Um, but so in the 90s, Democrats worked with police to pass the assault weapons ban. And police, you know, if you think about it, like they didn't want to be shot at with military grade weaponry. Um, but now, you know, that that law expired. And now the police unions and police groups ha and Democrats have a much more adversarial relationship. Um, can you like imagine a world where um, they join forces again and work together? Because again, when you're like looking at this Uvalde situation, it's hard to imagine that police you know, want these guns out there when they were too afraid to even go into the room, you know? So is there a possibility or a world in which you see the assault weapons ban going back into place? Yeah. I mean, on, on law enforcement, law enforcement are a really important voice advocating for good gun safety policies. They often see a lot of the damage firsthand, a lot of the gun violence firsthand, and they're also just really important voices with executives and with legislators. So it's definitely true that as the gun safety movement has grown up and recognized police violence as a you know, particularly pernicious form of gun violence, we've started advocating for a whole slate of police accountability policies, you know, from strengthening restrictions on use of force to growing you know, alternative dispatch type of programs, repealing qualified immunity, those have become pretty important pieces of the, the gun safety movement. But you know, none of that has stopped us from amplifying law enforcement voices when they stand up for the you know, more traditional core policies. Um, and they continue to be a really important voice. Um, on assault weapons specifically, Delaware passed an assault weapons ban last week uh, in, the wake of, in the wake of Uvalde. So the first new state to do that since New York nearly a decade ago. It's kind of a big deal. Uh, Rhode Island passed a high-capacity magazine ban also last week, following a couple others like Vermont and Colorado that have done so in recent years. So we've seen an uptick you know, in progress on those policy areas that a lot of folks in the, you know, if you just look at the national media, think that those issues are you know, those policies are kind of impossible or we've reached our limit on, on where they can be in effect. Um, you know, the prospects for a new federal ban are not great as of today, but we will absolutely keep pushing more states to keep making progress and, and make the showing that those laws are possible and that they make a difference. I mean, again, I'm really happy that we made momentum. I think that it is monumentous, but of course we still have a lot, you know, a lot further to go. But thank you so much for coming on our podcast and giving us this wealth of information. Um, we'll definitely put the Everytown website in the comments for the show. And, you know, fingers crossed that this legislation that passed makes a difference and keeps the momentum moving forward. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org.
Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.